today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through chapter 12, verse 3. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you! For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. Jesus says some tough stuff in this passage, doesn't he? I was reflecting this week on how 1 John 4.16 says God is love. And that same passage tells us if you want to know what God looks like, just look at Jesus. He's the revelation of God's love, which means... The person speaking in this passage is the perfect embodiment of perfect love. And one of the hard lessons that's already an implication of that is it seems like perfect love occasionally doesn't mind hurting our feelings. Jesus speaks some tough words here. 
And this kind of tough love sometimes is hard for us to hear. So I think before we go any further, we should pray again. I need, I need God's help. I need the help of the Holy Spirit to hear this word myself and to speak it. And you probably need help too. You think so, church? Okay, so let's bow our heads and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to hear the word of God today. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you now in the name of Jesus, praising you because you are wise, you are good, all your words are words of truth, you are perfectly loving, and we ask this morning that your name would be honored in our hearts, in our church, and in our community. We ask that you would forgive our sins, and that your Holy Spirit today would be our teacher. God, give us ears to hear, understanding and retentive minds. Give us grace to understand and to be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we meditate on this text of Scripture. Lord, I am a very imperfect messenger and I need your grace and your help to speak your word to your people this morning. I pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and today draw us closer to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, these tough words that Jesus speaks are spoken at a very awkward dinner party. Has anybody ever been to a very awkward dinner party? Um, this is one of those. This is probably more awkward than most of our most awkward dinner parties. Verse 37 says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And if you've been with us, you'll remember that the Pharisees were a group of very devout religious people who believed rightly that God's people had been disciplined by the Lord for their unfaithfulness to the law because of their disobedience. They violated the covenant of God. But then but then their solution, their solution was we have to perfectly obey everything that God has said and then the Savior will come and rescue us. And when they interpreted the law of the Lord, they added to it lots and lots of human traditions about how to interpret the law of God. And Jesus has been in an ongoing, um, low-key battle, conflict with these people because their understanding of God and God's purposes is very different than that of Jesus. And now the tension that has been growing between Jesus and the Pharisees, as well as the lawyers or scribes, which means expert Bible teachers who are experts. This tension is erupting and coming to the surface. The kingdom of God is coming in a way that exposes hypocrisy and calls us to repentance and authentic discipleship. When Jesus goes to the party, it says the Pharisee was astonished in verse 38 to see that he did not wash before dinner. Now, you may not feel like you can relate to that. But you need to understand that ceremonial washings were a very important part of the ritual purity that was so prized by this group of people. 
As Jesus will point out, they tended to interpret the law of God in a way that was very focused on externals, on behaviors that lead to ritual purity. So the equivalent of what they're getting mad at here for us might be something more like, I don't know, judging somebody for what they wear to church, judging somebody for showing up late, judging somebody for their kids not acting right. During a service. Um, we don't know what go, what's going on in people's lives. But we can get very judgmental based on external circumstances. Right? So they're getting very judgmental towards Jesus and his disciples. Based on Jesus not conforming to the traditions about hand washing as a part of ritual purity. And, and the text doesn't make it quite clear. Do they voice this astonishment? Do they start verbally criticizing Jesus? Or does he just know their thoughts? And then launch into his response. But beginning in verse 39, Jesus does launch into a response. And these are some of the strongest words that we have in the Gospels of Jesus rebuking people. You may have heard the little statement oft repeated in Christian circles so much so that it could be a little bit of a cliche. But this one is actually true. Which is that Jesus, like the prophets before him and the apostles after him, has a tendency to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And that is accurate as a summary statement that very often the most tender words of Jesus are for those who already know that they're big sinners and are feeling desperate and feeling tempted to despair. And the most strong, challenging, firm words of Jesus are for those Religious hypocrites who are very satisfied with themselves and critical towards others. And that's the situation here. In verses 39 through 52, Jesus launches into his criticism. And that passage includes seven warnings or seven rebukes. Six of them start with the words, woe to you. The first one is more of a general statement that doesn't include the words woe to you. But there are seven rebukes here. In a second, we're going to walk through those and try to think about them and ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand what Jesus is saying. But I want to, before we do that, help us frame these seven rebukes from Jesus by noticing what happens after Jesus rebukes these people. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 53 says that the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him and something that he might say. So they are angered. They're very furious. They're filled with rage at Jesus for daring to publicly challenge them and rebuke them so firmly. And now, from this point forward, they have intensified their opposition to him. They're trying to trap him in something that he says that they can use against him. Ultimately, it's going to lead to them conspiring for his death. So they're very angry. But as we get into chapter 12, verse 1, first thing to notice is that they are totally ineffective at stopping the movement of Jesus. Verse 1, in the meantime... When so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. Notice Luke is drawing a direct contrast between the the scribes, the Pharisees, these 
very arrogant and critical religious leaders and the common people who are tripping over themselves and over one another, literally, in their mad rush to get closer to Jesus. Because they have sensed something in him that is different. They sense the presence of God. They've, they've heard the power of God. Many of them, of course, may just be looking for a healer, a physical healer, or even a military deliverer. Some of them undoubtedly will turn against Jesus, but many of them are going to turn back again after his resurrection and Pentecost because they've encountered with some, in Christ something real. So the opposition to Jesus grows, but the opposition to Jesus cannot stop the movement of Jesus, which is still true today. Church, if we try to follow Jesus, are we going to face some opposition? No false advertising here. We're going to face op- opposition. We're going to face difficulty. But if all the forces of evil line up against Jesus, even if it was just Jesus on Team Jesus, who's going to win? Jesus is going to win. Plus, there's a lot of angels and a whole big church all over the world, right? Jesus is going to win. He can't be stopped. But then notice in the second half of verse one, what happens? It says, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. If you want a sermon title, my sermon title is the leaven of hypocrisy. What is leaven? It's it's yeast. Who, a few of you have made some bread before. Can you raise your hand if you made some bread before? Okay, okay. I didn't know we had that much fresh bread skills in our church. That was a lot of people. And if you just put a little bit of yeast into that dough, doesn't take much, what happens? Somebody shout it out. It rises, it spreads. The yeast spreads and leavens the whole batch, right? This, Jesus uses this metaphor in different ways at different times. He compares the kingdom of God. To yeast spreading through a batch of dough. Often in our individual lives and in our communities, when when we start coming to the Lord and God starts working in our lives, it starts so small that you can't see it. You might start to feel like God isn't working, but he's doing something very deep that over time will spread and have a very big impact. Right. Like yeast through a batch of dough. But here he's saying hypocrisy is also like yeast. Religious hypocrisy is also like leaven. And he's saying it to who? Look, look at the text. Look at the text. Who's he talking to? Somebody yelled out. I heard you whisper the right answer. His disciples. That wasn't really a yell, but I'll accept it. Everybody say his disciples. He's saying it to the, his disciples. He's not even saying it to the crowd. He's the crowd. He's saying it to his disciples, the ones that are already committed, that are already following him. And so but what he's saying to them is be careful Because even you, among my committed disciples, it's very easy to get a little speck of hypocrisy inside of you. That hurts our feelings, doesn't it? But can we admit that it's true? It's true. And he says, once it gets in, if you don't catch it quick, it can start to spread. And it it can end up shaping your whole life. It can end up doing a lot of damage in your community. What is hypocrisy, by the way? It basically means... Play acting, it means faking, comes from Greek drama, the idea that you could have one actor that plays a lot of different players and puts different masks up based on what character or what setting is supposed to be happening at the moment. So the opposite of faking, of hypocrisy, play acting, is being authentic, being genuine, being real. So Jesus, in verse 12 
says to his committed disciples, or we could even just say to us as his church, he says to us, hey, that thing that you saw being so ugly in the Pharisees, that play acting, that faking, be careful because it can get in your heart. And I don't want you to be enslaved to that. I want you to walk in the freedom of authentic discipleship. That's what he said. That's what so for us to hear this word from Jesus, we just have to ask ourselves the question here. Church, do we want to play games? Do we want to play act? Because if that's the case, what we're doing here could actually become a form of bondage. But throughout Luke's gospel, over and over, Jesus has come to set us free through his cross, through his word, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things he's come to set us free from is the power of hypocrisy. Once again, church, aren't you glad Jesus didn't just die to save you from the penalty of sin and to leave you wallowing in the self-destructive folly of your own hypocrisy? He came not only to forgive you, but to say, hey, I want to help you walk in freedom. I want to help you walk in freedom. I'm going to come back to chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 and think about them at the end. So we'll skip those now. But here's how I think we should listen as we walk through these seven little rebukes here. I'll say this. If you're here today and you are spiritually seeking, trying to decide if you think Jesus is real and if you want to be a Christian, this is a great passage of scripture for you to listen to for a couple of reasons. One you probably already know that one of the things most likely to keep you from becoming a Christian is religious hypocrites. So here you get to hear Jesus tell you how he feels about that. But also you should be forewarned that whatever temptations you're dealing with now, if you decide to repent and follow Jesus, pretty soon you'll feel tempted to act like those people that you currently despise. As a matter of fact, when you get further down the journey, some of us could testify it's very possible to despise religious hypocrite while being one, right? We could do both at the same time. Now, if you're a committed follower of Jesus, here's what I want to say to you today. This is not about condemnation. It's not about condemnation. I'd say it's really, though it's a challenging word, it is an invitation to freedom. It is the Holy Spirit saying to us, let me help you look inside yourself so you can find those tendencies inside of you that would rob you of the joy of authentic discipleship. Not so that you can be ashamed of them, but so that you can turn from them. Again and again to walk in the freedom of the children of God. And here's what I would encourage you to do as you listen to these seven warnings of Jesus. Just ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify one or two in particular. That's a temptation for you that you can watch out for so it doesn't creep into your heart. Without further ado, let's walk through these. We'll, we'll pause and linger on a couple of them and, and the others will have to walk through very quickly. But I'll just try to give you the big idea so you can meditate on it on your own. The first warning is this. Jesus says to the Pharisees, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, each one, give you a little summary. You can write it down if you want to. And then uh, I'll try to show it to you in the text. First warning is this. You focus on appearance and behavior when God is focused on changing your hearts. You focus on appearance, how you look to other people. You focus on behavior, modifying external actions when God is focused on changing your heart. Verse 39, Jesus says this pretty clearly. You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup. That's, that's behavior, that's appearance. You cleanse the outside of the cup. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Your hearts are a mess. Notice in verse 40 that he says, you fools. You fools. That's strong language. 
In the Old Testament wisdom literature, there are in fact many kinds of fools, not just one. But what they all have in common is a lifestyle that is actively opposed to the wisdom of God. That's a phrase for you to think about. Remember, we can see it again in a second. Everybody say the wisdom of God. Fools are people who live lifestyles that are actively opposed to the wisdom of God. It's different than the simple. The simple in Proverbs, for example, are basically the naive. They're, they're inexperienced. You could be simple without quite being a fool yet. And if you're teachable, the simple can become wise. But also, if wisdom comes and corrects us, like is happening in this passage, and we harden our hearts, then we can become habituated in patterns of thinking and feeling and behaving that are actually actively opposed to the wisdom of God. And Jesus is saying to them, you are fools. That's, that's a really strong statement to say to a Pharisee in public. You're fools because you focus so much energy on appearance and you don't care about what God cares about. He told you in First Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. By focusing on external ritual purity, according to their traditions, made up rules, while neglecting internal transformation by the word of God, these Pharisees have become fools. What's the solution? In, in many of these rebukes, he just says the rebuke and then moves on. And you have to ask yourself, what is the opposite? What would repentance look like? But there's a couple of times where he tells us. And here's one of them. And it's very profound. Look at verse 41. He says, but give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. That's a deep word right there. This word alms is an important one. Everybody say alms. Alms giving was a very important part of Jewish spirituality. It means something specific. Alms giving at a basic level means giving money or food or some other form of material assistance to relieve the suffering of a person who is in serious poverty. It's about generosity to the poor. But almsgiving is not just about our horizontal relationships with one another. Almsgiving, as devout Jews understood it, was an act of worship. I'm going to honor God by relieving the suffering of a person made in the image of God. That's what almsgiving is about. By caring for the suffering of a person whom God created and God loves, I'm honoring the creator. That's almsgiving. Proverbs 14.31 sums it up. There's a lot of wisdom literature stuff going on in this passage. Proverbs 14.31 sums up the logic of almsgiving like this. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Honors the maker. Honors God. Whoever is generous to the needy honors God. That's almsgiving. Almsgiving. It's a spiritual discipline. It's an act of worship. Towards God. So then we got to ask the question, what does it mean? Give as alms those things that are within. Well, if you go check out Matthew six. You will see Jesus addressing the fact that these people did, in fact, give alms. They, they would give money, but even in almsgiving, they were concerned about appearance. They were concerned about winning the approval of others. They would make a big show of generosity to others. And Jesus challenges his disciples, give in secret, serve in secret where no one but God knows. 
And that will help you keep your heart pure, where you know you're doing it out of genuine concern and love for other people, for the glory of God. That doesn't mean we should never do anything good if somebody else is watching. He does tell us to be a people of good works so that everybody in the community will see our good good works and give glory to God. That's Matthew chapter five. Right. But he says also take a practice. And by the way, if you do something good that somebody sees today, there's going to be plenty of opportunity to serve somebody that nobody notices for tomorrow. Life is not short on opportunities to do good for others without getting any credit for it. Amen, church. When Jesus says, give as alms what is within, really what he's saying is something like this. In your hearts, in your hearts, love God so sincerely that you genuinely care about and serve the vulnerable people in your community, even if nobody's looking as an act of worship to God. That's what he's saying. We could think of James chapter one, the difference between pure, true religion and fake religion. Do I genuinely love God in a way that causes me to genuinely care about people that I'm moving towards the poor, the widow, the fatherless, those who are hurting in compassion? That's the first rebuke. And the correction, if you want to, if you're too focused on externals, not enough focus on the internals, Jesus said, in your heart, worship God by serving the vulnerable. Here's the second rebuke. You make a big deal out of religious exercises, but neglect the deeper moral issues that God really cares about, namely justice and love. You make a big deal, Jesus says to these hypocrites, you make a big deal out of religious exercises, but neglect the deeper moral issues that God really cares about, justice and love. Look at verse 42. It says, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. And neglect justice and the love of God. You make a big deal out of tithing, but you neglect what's more important. Doing justice. Loving God. In the previous warning, Jesus used the language of the sages, the wisdom teachers of Israel. He talked about fools. He evoked the tradition of Proverbs, almsgiving. But now Jesus is talking like the prophets of Israel. What he says here echoes basically every prophet in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few references to write down. I don't have time to go into them, but you can study them later. I'll give you four. In Isaiah 58, all the ones I'm going to mention are saying something very closely parallel to what Jesus says in verse 42. Isaiah 58, God rebukes the people and says, you care a lot about fasting, but what I want you to do is to break the yoke of oppression, feed the hungry, and bring the homeless into your house. In Amos chapter 5, God is speaking to people who are very devoutly religious, and they love to sing songs of praise to God, but they also have made a habit of indulging in economic practices that hurt the poor. And Jesus says to them, your praise songs are like noise in my ears, I can't stand it. Instead, let justice roll down like waters. In Micah chapter 6, God has been rebuking for five chapters the children of Israel for a variety of sins, including idolatry, but especially for injustice to the poor. Specifically, wealthy business owners were grabbing up land from poor people and thus stealing their ancestral inheritance that they had been guaranteed by God and trapping their families, consequently, in multi-generational poverty. 
And so, in chapter 6, Micah asks the question, what's going to solve this problem? You're under God's wrath for your sin. What's going to solve the problem? Does God want you to bring a thousand rams as burnt offerings? And he says, you know the verse already. You, he says, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to what? Do justice. Love, mercy, your kindness has said. Delight in steadfast love. And walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. He, Hosea 6. Be another passage. God says simply, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Why do I talk about all those parallels? Well, it, what do they all have in common with verse 42? Here's another way to say it. What do fasting, singing worship songs, burnt offerings, and tithing have in common? Answer. They are all important spiritual exercises, valid religious activities, at least in the Old Covenant. We don't do burnt sacrifices anymore. They're all valid spiritual exercises, important religious things, but none of them is as important as expressing our love for God by loving our neighbors, showing compassion for the vulnerable, and actively seeking justice for the oppressed. So Jesus says, these you ought to have done, justice and the love of God, without neglecting the others. Don't neglect tithing. Hey, Austin, do I get an amen from you? Austin has a very difficult task of leading our stewardship committee, which is trying very hard to balance our church budget, despite the reckless ministry behaviors of myself and others. So you need to pray for them. And I just from the pulpit stewardship community, just let it be heard that I said you should not neglect contributing financially to the ministries right here in the Bible. Come to the members meeting if you want the full story on all that. Um, but, but God says, here's what's more important though. What's more important. Love God and do justice. Third rebuke is this. You want to be treated like you are more important than other people. Doesn't that get all of us? I don't want to be treated more like I'm more important than other people. I just want everybody to see how special I am compared to those around me, you know. We can all fall into that trap. It's just pride. But verse 43 says, you love the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces. I don't know what the equivalent of this for, is for introverts. I think this is a very extroverted form of pride he's talking about. You love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. We want to be respected. We want to be treated as the most important. Here, here's the thing, church. We all want to be important. And there's actually nothing wrong with wanting to be valued. God values you, right? The more we know that we're valued by God, the less we feel this compulsive need to be validated by others. Amen? So everybody turn to your neighbor, tell them, God values you. You are valuable to God. But when we're struggling to believe that God loves us, or when we think that God's love for us is not enough, we seek a lot of validation from other people. We could do it to our spouses. We could do it to people in our church. We could do it to our boss. That's why everybody doesn't like their boss at work, because no boss has ever appreciated how great I really am on the inside, right? So, uh, amen. So, we all feel that. We all want a lot of affirmation. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be valued, but this can easily become an idol that makes us hypocrites because everything we're doing is about getting other people to see so they can validate us, right? 
So Jesus says, uh, he, he warns us against it. Don't live for the affirmation and approval for others. Here, we're not told how to repent, but it's pretty clear. Live to please God. Live to please God. Let, keep bringing my motivation back to, I want to, when my race is done and the Lord with nail pierced hands welcomes me into the joy he has prepared for me, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the motivation. Fourth rebuke. You fake spiritual life when you are really dead. Verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk all over them without knowing it. What he's basically saying is you're very respected in your community as being very spiritual people, but there's no life in you. And Jesus, I hope you hear, he's using very sharp words for Pharisees trying to shock them out of a complacency that threatens their immortal souls because he loves them. Jesus loves Pharisees. He does. If you're feeling convicted, Jesus loves Pharisees. Remember Nicodemus? I got a better one. Remember Saul of Tarsus? I've talked to a few of you recently about, as I study the New Testament, I'm increasingly amazed. The amazing thing is not that there were fights between Paul on one hand and Peter and James on the other. That's not amazing. What's amazing is that they sort of worked it out. Because Peter and James were leaders of the church in Jerusalem that Paul killed and scattered. As a Pharisee, an angry Pharisee. He was not having an emotional crisis about how to get his life right. He was not a person who had a problem looking for a solution. He was a self-satisfied Pharisee who met the resurrected solution and then thought, I think I may have misunderstood the problem. That's who Saul of Tarsus was. He was a hard-hearted, ignorant, zealous, arrogant Pharisee. And Jesus wanted him. Jesus loved him. So the rebuke here is not based on condemnation. Just like Jesus was going to make Paul, Saul of Tarsus, one of the holiest saints in the history of the church. Greatest missionary, greatest theologian, maybe, in the history of the church. But also, that means there's hope for us. Even if you're already hitting like four out of four of these rebukes. He loves us. He's calling us out of it. He's calling us to freedom. Number five. Fifth rebuke. You are quick to criticize others and slow to help others when it costs. You're quick to criticize others and slow to help others when it costs something. How does Jesus say it? For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. By the way, to get to that one, you have to go through verse 45, where one of the teachers of the law says, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. You've got to be careful saying stuff like that, right? Because then Jesus begins to directly speak to the teachers of the law. Bible teachers teach the Mosaic law. That's their job. And he says, but when you're doing your job, you're supposed to be helping people. But instead, you're you're casting crushing burdens on people. How are they doing that? I think probably in two ways. One of them is they were making up a bunch of traditions that were not even in the Bible in the first place. That Moses never said. You got to wash your hands. 
We need to be really careful about this, church, because there are some moral, ethical rules of thumb that can be valid or valuable for you. They can even reach the place of a helpful personal conviction that if you apply them to another person, you could end up crushing one of God's saints, right? Um, I, I just, I've just seen it so many times. Hey, there's a lot of us that should stay all the way away from alcohol because alcoholism is a big temptation. It's a scare, right? But don't judge your brother. Don't judge your brother. Jesus drunk wine. That's between him and God. I mean, if he's got an alcohol problem, then you need to step in. But you hear what I'm saying, right? I remember we went through a period of time where there was the people in our church who had really struggled with unhealthy music stuff. And then they were going around telling everybody um, that they can't listen to any secular music. Y'all remember that? And a lot of people really struggled with that for a long time. That was before most of you were here. But like five of y'all remember that. <laughs> I, uh, I try to teach the Bible, teach the gospel, and drive around listening to Tribe Called Quest. Not all of the songs. Some of them are bad, right? Some of them, but there's a few of them. I was free in Christ to enjoy. You can just make up rules. You can just make up rules. These are the really important religious rules. Why was cussing the sin I was most afraid of as a kid growing up in church? I'm not saying that we should go around cussing and drinking alcohol or even necessarily listen to Tribe Called Quest. Although there's a couple songs. <laughs> but what, what I am saying is one of the temptations of religious hypocrisy is to make up a bunch of rules that aren't in the Bible that are personal convictions, which may or may not even be helpful for you. And then project them on everybody else and start criticizing everybody else. And Jesus is just saying, listen, that's that's not fun. You don't like it. Nobody else likes it. It doesn't please God. Let's just not do that. <laughs> Let's just not do that. But there's another way here, which would be to take the real commandments of God and then to teach them to others as if we're always following it rightly and nailing it every time and not struggling. But you're always messing it up. What's wrong with you? As opposed to. Teaching the real commandments of God in a way that is, is saying, hey, listen, God loves me when I mess up and make mistakes and God loves you. And he's calling us. He, his commandments are showing us the path of flourishing. He's showing us how to live as authentic, thriving human beings. His commandments are not burdensome. Um, let's help each other along the way. You hear the difference there, church? The scribes are heaping burdens on people, but they don't want to make sacrifices to help people. So Jesus is telling us to do the opposite of that. Don't keep heavy burdens on others. Do be willing to sacrifice to help people. Fifth one or sixth. What are we on? I lost track here. Your spiritual. Okay, I'm going to go fast for these last couple. Your spiritual heirs of those ancient rebels who killed God's prophets. For example, verse 48. You are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them. The prophets. And you build their tombs. Here's, here's the irony of what Jesus is saying. The scribes were building tombs to the prophets in order to honor the prophets. That's why they were doing it. But Jesus is saying, you claim to honor the prophets, but actually you are the spiritual descendants of those who killed the prophets. What does he mean by that? Why is he saying that? Because all of the prophets of God were, were speaking a word of truth that was calling the people away from idolatry, away from injustice, back to faithfulness to the true God who would forgive them and restore them. And now God has come among them in person in the purpose of, in the person of Jesus. He has come among them and they're 
resisting him and they're about to kill him. And, and he's warning them, if you persist in this arrogant rebellion, God is going to hold you accountable for all for all those generations of unfaithfulness. It's a strong warning. I want you to notice the little phrase in verse 49. I told you we'd come back to verse 49. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, and if you're looking at the ESV, wisdom is a capital letter indicating to us that what we're looking at here is the personification of a divine attribute or perhaps a divine person. This is God. It's God's wisdom. You can think about Proverbs eight and nine, where wisdom is personified and speaks. And Jesus says here, the wisdom of God said, and then he explains some things. He's not quoting any scriptures. He's just mouthpiece for the wisdom of God. And what it means in this text is that in the midst of all the evil and all the unfaithfulness and all the rejecting the prophets that's been going on for generations, God has had a plan. God's providence has been at work and God's plan cannot be thwarted. And I'm telling you right now, Jesus is saying, you want to be on the inside of the kingdom of God when it comes now in the fullness of time. Jesus is here personifying wisdom and is the mouthpiece of wisdom, or perhaps he's even identifying himself with the wisdom of God. By the way, Jesus is not only the great prophet beyond all prophets, the great king beyond all kings. The great priest who makes peace between us and God breathes the great sage, the wisdom, great wisdom teacher. If you want to think about that, you can go read Ben Witherington III's book, Jesus the Sage, but that's not what this sermon is about. And now let's get to the last warning. Last warning here. He says, you are teachers who actually lead people away from the truth instead of toward the truth. Verse 52, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves. And you hindered those who were entering. True wisdom consists in the knowledge of God, knowledge of the Holy One. This is wisdom. And these men had devoted their lives to studying the scriptures. And yet he's saying, you study them, you study them, you study them, but you didn't get what it's all about. What is it all about? Well, go check what Jesus says in John. He says, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that by them you possess salvation. It is they that bear witness about me. And yet here I am and you won't listen. The whole Bible was pointing towards Jesus. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. Another way to say this, the whole Bible was pointing towards the fact that we need a God of grace to save us. We cannot save ourselves. And now they're reading the Bible as if it's God's self-help book about how to save ourselves and then blaming everybody else for not doing it right. Thus, missing out on the gift that God wants to give to them and hindering other people from hearing from God. Now, those are seven. Those are the seven warnings. And I want to end today by coming back. To the fact we looked at before we got into seven warnings, which is that Jesus also warned his committed disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And I want to encourage you this week to meditate on this passage Holy Spirit, show me which of these are my temptations. Which of these do I need to watch out for? Are there any of these that not only are they in me, but maybe they've started spreading? Like yeast does, like leaven does. 
I don't want to play act, Jesus. I want to be an authentic disciple of you. Make no mistake, there is a call to repentance here. Love calls us to repentance. But it is a gracious call. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. He came to teach, to heal, to die for our sins, and to rise again, so that, among other things, religious hypocrites could be forgiven and become authentic disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news, church? Nicodemus, Saul of Tarsus, me, you, there's hope for all of us. When Jesus on the cross as the God-man is bearing the sins of the world, religious arrogance is included there. Play acting is included there. And the real way to get free from this stuff is to go back to the cross and say, I can't save myself. That's what I need. I need the, this grace of God, this love of God. And to say, Holy Spirit, help me to follow this Jesus. Help me to live for him. Help me to be so satisfied in his love that I don't need to perform for other people's approval anymore. I can be real. Look again at the last verse of our text. I told you we'd come back to it. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus is saying, I'm going to shine light on all your private words and actions. That's a metaphor we've encountered repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke, including last week and a couple months ago in chapter 8. And as we've said each time, that metaphor can be a really scary thought if we would like to hide from God. His light penetrates into every corner of our hearts. There is indeed here a note of coming judgment. The comfortable, those who are comfortable in their rebellion should hear that word and tremble. But there's also a word of comfort here. Because the more I get to know Jesus over time, the more I've experienced, and some of you have experienced too, his light is a good thing. His light is a good thing. It's a healing light. It's a healing love for those who open themselves to it. The way to be free from fear of the light is to run to the light and say, Jesus, here I am. I'm a mess. Help me out. Shine your light into every part of me. And look again at the last verse where we left off last week. If you got your Bible, it's, it's Luke 11:36. The verse before the first verse of this week. This is the context. Jesus said to his disciples, if your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright. As when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And last week, last week we talked about that is a very encouraging word about how good God is at sanctifying those sinners who trust in him. What he's saying is if you'll keep coming back to the cross, keep trusting me, keep repenting, keep letting me shine my light in you. I will not only forgive you, I will heal you and transform you you until you're you have no light. There's not a grain of hypocrisy yeast in you. Don't you want that, church? The, the final day when that all the way happens is heaven. We see him face to face and we become like him because we see him as he is. But the call to discipleship is day by day. Be free of the, the laws, of the rules of the hypocrites and just follow Jesus. Paul, the Pharisee, by the way, 
is, who, who thought he was going to be saved by the law, says some of the most radical things about being set free from the power of the law. He says, you, you're free from the law. I mean, he says free from sin, but he also says free from the law. Instead, you're yoked you're to yoked. Jesus. Wouldn't you rather Jesus be the mediator between you and God than the law of Moses? My goodness. You're yoked to the person of Jesus Christ. That's your salvation. That's your freedom. And your obedience is not about keep all these abstract codes so you can feel like a success. It's about trust and follow Jesus. That's the call. So where I want to be today is saying, Jesus, shine in me, shine in me. I don't want to hide from the light. Your truth is your love, is your grace, and it's good, and it's liberating. It's freedom. I want to be clean on the inside. I want to give to God and my neighbors alms, which are the things from within me. I want to do justice and love God because I'm freed by the gospel of grace. How you get free from hypocrisy? Admit that you're a sinner and trust in Jesus. It's also how you get saved. It's how you go to heaven. It's kind of the answer for everything in this church, isn't it? Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, you're so good to us. And we thank you not only for forgiving us for sins like self-indulgence and greed and lust and hurting others, but also for our pride, for our religious play-acting. It's so good to know that we are your beloved children, even while we're in the middle of our journey of sanctification. And Jesus, right now, we just want to exalt you and say, you're our savior, you're our friend, you're our master, you're our teacher, and we want your light to shine in us. We want your light to shine in us. Holy Spirit, I pray that even as we sing now and worship you, you would be shining light into places in our hearts where there may be a little bit of bondage, there may be a little bit of yeast of hypocrisy that you want to set us free from, that we would walk in the freedom of the children of God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.